This is a podcast about sound, how it impacts your life and the people who are creating the sound of the future. Welcome to Powered by Audio, supported by EPOS. Based on pioneering audio technology, EPOS strives to unleash human potential by perfecting audio experiences. Learn more at eposaudio.com. I'm Randy Zuckerberg. On this episode, we explore audio that saves lives. Later, we'll talk with someone who answers the phones at an emergency call center. First, unless you're a nervous flyer, you probably don't think about the people behind the scenes who make sure your flights take off safely. And just as importantly, land that way too. In addition to the pilots and ground crew, a network of highly trained air traffic controllers are in constant communication. And as you might guess, good audio and being a good listener is key. With us is Sarah Skulski, an air traffic control specialist based in Southern California. Sarah, welcome to Powered by Audio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sarah, I love to talk about passion. Can you tell me when you discovered your passion for flying and being around airplanes? I just loved airplanes from an early age. And also, like a lot of young people, is I had that one influential person and step into my life and take an interest and took me to air shows. And that's where, I mean, airplanes do the coolest things ever <laughs> at those military air shows. So I was just kind of hooked from then on. And, and originally, I wanted to go down the pilot path. And then as I kind of looked into things a little bit more, that's where I, I got into the air traffic field. So cool. So what kind of training do you need in order to be an air traffic controller? Because I assume this isn't a job just anyone can decide to do. Right. So everybody who starts their career as an air traffic controller outside of the military, they start at the FAA Academy in Oklahoma City. And so the FAA has a great, great system that essentially a bunch of computer monitors can simulate what you would do on the actual job. And once you get through that training, if you are successful, you choose your first facility you're going to go to. And for me, that was Santa Monica. And then once you get to there, that's where they say the real work begins. You have a trainer behind you the entire time that can key over you at any second if you make a mistake. And you eventually get what's called recommended and then a sign off so you can start working traffic by yourself. So we, we see people like you up in that tower, Sarah. What is it like up there? Maybe can you take us through what's the scene up in the control tower? So it is a round room with multiple positions, and each station has a lot of equipment that goes with that specific position you're working. So, for example, if you are working the ground control position, you will have a keyboard where you can input information that will edit a pilot's flight plan. Or you might have another keyboard that allows you to put inputs on the radar screen. Each control panel has a, a monitor button. So I could be in the back of the room and monitoring what any of the controllers is doing. So we have a lot of checks and balances there. The mood is based on how busy you are at the moment. There's sometimes where you have a thunderstorm rolling through and there's no airplanes flying. So the mood can be controllers hanging out and chit-chatting and being very relaxed. Or the mood can be very tense and there's not much in between. <laughs> but yeah, I'd say really tense moments where 
it occurs when the airspace is oversaturated, when there's too many airplanes trying to get to the same spot. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got assigned to be the control tower operator at the famous Santa Monica Airport and if there are any good stories you have about that airport and why it's so special. So I got Santa Monica essentially because the FAA gives you choices based on need. So they needed controllers at Santa Monica, and I had a few choices, and I thought, "Mm, I think I'll take Santa Monica. That sounds like a lot of fun. And when I got there, I found out it, it really has such a rich history. It is the oldest airport operating in L.A. County, and it is where Douglas Aircraft operated for many years. They built and they tested a lot of different aircraft, including the DC-3. And I mean, the airport transformed the town from a sleepy beach town to a blue-collar working town. I think it employed 45,000 people in its, in its prime. And now it's a smaller general aviation, a lot of training, a lot of corporate jets going in and out. There's a lot of kind of cool people that operate in and out of there. One of the people to note that that flies in and out of Santa Monica is Harrison Ford. He's got his whole fleet of aircraft there. There was a time where Tom Cruise had a, a couple airplanes out of there. The best views you will ever see. I mean, you look out one side and you have the most beautiful sunset over the mountains where the mountains reach the ocean. You look at another side and you see the Hollywood sign. So it's just, it's a really cool airport. (laughs) That's awesome. Sarah, what would you say have been some of the most exciting moments of your career as an air traffic controller? It's really never a dull moment. One thing that we do at a a VFR tower where I work is we fly by what's called visual flight rules. So a lot of the separation is what's called see and avoid. So as a controller, you are trying to get a pilot to see another aircraft by giving them an o'clock position or just to your right and, and making sure that they see the other aircraft. And there have been times where the pilot just didn't understand and maybe didn't see the right airplane and all of a sudden he's cutting that airplane off. I don't want to say they happen often, but there it's definitely, you know, humans in the airplanes, humans in the tower, so susceptible to air. What about close calls? Can you tell us a story of when audio communication or your communication saved the day? I don't want to say they happen often. <laughs> but one story I can talk about is a student pilot went up on her first solo flight and she was 17 years old and lost her landing gear, which is a big deal. Oh my gosh. (laughs) On her first flight, poor thing. You can tell by her voice, she is very, very nervous, rightfully so. And ATC the entire time stays very calm and they actually brought her instructor up into the control tower. And he guided her down right on on the radios and and in the background, air traffic control is still having to work other aircraft as that's going on. She ended up landing the aircraft successfully enough to survive. and, (laughs) And now she flies more. How can you tell when a pilot is under stress? Are there things that you're you're listening for that aren't just language? I mean, you can tell from the sound of someone's voice if they are really young or new. And whenever we give an instruction, we expect, for, for the most part, we expect a readback, and that's to confirm that the pilot heard you and 
they heard the correct instruction. So say we'll give a heading. The next thing that we're listening for is the pilot to read back that heading and or that instruction. And you can tell on the sound of someone's voice if it's a little much for them. They they really stumble over it. Maybe they have to have you say it again. So we listen for those things or really just kind of the sound in, in someone's voice. I actually, when I was a new pilot, I I totally understand where pilots are coming from because your first flight is really exciting but really terrifying. <laughs> and you can hear that in someone's voice. I'm sure that the new pilots appreciate having someone as understanding as you on the line. Are you allowed to like give them a reassuring word or no, or you have to just stick very clearly to instructions? There's no rule against it being nice. (laughs) Uh, They always want you to be calm and collected, especially when a pilot really is in a stressful situation, say something's going wrong with their aircraft or they're flying into weather. If they can have a calm, collected voice, then that's going to help them stay calm and really get through a, a very stressful situation. I mean, it sounds like clear, concise, and effective audio communication is very key here. What other things are you listening for? It can be a very routine job with moments of stress, but what you're doing, your day-to-day is very routine. Aviation is is pretty organized, actually. And with the small moments of, of course, something can go wrong. Aircraft can have issues, weather can create issues, and things can change very rapidly and quickly, and you have to react correctly. And that's really where the the stress comes. Another example of really good communication between pilot and air traffic is the near miss in San Francisco. You might have heard of Air Canada lining up for the taxiway. And from the controller's perspective, it wasn't easy to see that they were lining up for a taxiway versus the runway. So a United pilot actually alerted ATC, and at the last minute, their air traffic controller said, go around, go around, go around, which means to the pilot that's coming into land, start a climb. You can't land here. Start a climb now. Wow. So that was uh, another pretty close call where communication between different set of eyes than just ATC is something that we rely on a lot and can really save the day sometimes. Well, it sounds like the aviation community is really tight-knit. How does it feel to be a part of that? Uh, It feels great. (laughs) Like I said, we're all looking out for each other. We all want each other to be successful because safety is such a big factor in the flying community. And it's also a small world. Once you get into aviation, you run into people that Maybe you didn't think your past would cross again, but just because it's a small world, kind of like the military, how you're always crossing paths with people from your past. Did you say your husband's in aviation too? Are you guys like a whole aviation family? Yeah, he's a helicopter pilot in the Navy. He's really big into aviation. He's he's an aviation nerd, I think. <laughs> so now that you know what you no. Has it ruined flying in a plane for you as a passenger? Like, are you are you looking around for clues about how the flight is going? Or are you able to actually just relax and enjoy a flight as a passenger? Well, I trust the air traffic controllers. I trust the pilots from working in this field. So it, I am relaxed on flights. <laughs> but yes, I can tell a lot that maybe someone who doesn't have 
aviation experience would know. For example, if you are holding short of a runway and there's no airplanes taking off and there's no airplanes landing and you're asking, why are we just sitting here? Um, That has to do with the metering that air traffic uses. It's called traffic management unit. And what they do is say you're departing an airport like Pensacola and you're going to Atlanta. Now, Atlanta is going to be very busy. So ATC will give you a specific time slot that you can depart. So when you get to Atlanta, there's space for you, (laughs) whether it be weather or just the volume of traffic. So we're really metering the flights before they even take off from their uh, initial position. Wow. Okay. Well, good. Now I have something to to look for the next time I'm a passenger on a flight. It sounds like, Sarah, you definitely find yourself in some tense experiences. I'm wondering if there's anything that you've learned about how to stay calm and collected under that pressure that you think could apply for the rest of us in our daily lives. Certainly. I'd say that when you find yourself in a very, very stressful situation, maybe you're traveling with kids and another person looking at you and giving you a a thumbs up and saying, you know what, you're doing okay, can just make all the difference. And as an air traffic controller, a pilot who's in a tense situation, just a calm voice, a reassuring voice can make all the difference. And it can, it can really help the pilot perform in a, in a way that really saves their life. I love it. Well, Sarah Skolsky, thank you so much. I feel safer as a passenger knowing that amazing people like you are looking out for us and helping planes take off and land safely. Thank you so much for joining us today on Powered by Audio. Thank you so much for having me. Powered by Audio is proudly supported by EPOS. EPOS has become the global audio partner of the Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team. World-class communication tools are vital for top performance in Formula One racing, and in your business. With clear sound and innovative voice enhancement technologies, EPOS is unleashing human potential wherever success matters. Find out more at eposaudio.com. That's a sound none of us wants to hear. But if you ever have to call for help with an emergency, let's hope that someone as skilled and experienced as our next guest is on the other end. I'm not being overly dramatic at all by saying that April Heinze has helped save countless lives. Beginning as a 911 professional, she worked her way up to being director for the Eaton County, Michigan Dispatch Center. Now she's the 911 operations director for NINA, the 911 Association. April, thanks for joining us on Powered by Audio today. Hi, Randy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. April, now you work for NENA, uh, N-E-N-A. What does that stand for and what is your role there? NENA is the National Emergency Number Association. We are the only association in the United States specifically dedicated to 911 issues. We create both operational and technical standards. We also do government advocacy as well as education and training. So we do a whole host of things, but it's in support of those 911 professionals. Now, you've been on the front lines taking these calls for many years, then training and helping others in that role. Let's go back in time. What is it like to take an emergency call? 
Well, it's like nothing else you can ever imagine, right? You get a whole lot of emotion coming at you the very minute you answer the call. And it's your responsibility as the 911 professional to take a hold of that call and walk that person through to get them the help that they need. It's definitely uh, a calling. You either really love doing the job or it's not something that you're going to stay with. Can you walk me through what a typical day looks like if there even is such a thing for a 911 professional? Well, and I think you just hit the nail on the head. I don't think there really is a typical day. You could have a day that is uh, really quite boring where there's not much going on. You handle a handful of important calls and, and then you do a lot of routine type of calls like alarms and other things that like that that come in. Then you can have the next day where you come in and the minute you walk in the door, it's uh, you're hit with a uh, weather event and that weather event just rocks your world from the minute you step in the door until the minute you leave. And then when you leave, you think, wow, what just happened today? I, I, I don't even know what all I did, right? Because you just do things, you go by muscle memory, right? And I think that's one of the things that's so amazing about the job is that you never know what you're going to get, right? You might pick up the phone and it might be somebody who has locked their keys in their car and they don't know what else to do. So they've called 911. The next call may be a mom calling and her baby's not breathing and you're gonna have to walk her through CPR and get... Um, emergency responders there until such time as, um, you know, you're going to be with her every step of that way. So you just never know what you're going to get. Wow. You just mentioned you get calls from all parts of society. You need to be trusted by everyone. I'm curious how one person manages to do that if you have to go through kind of extensive training in order to be trusted by anyone of, of any age uh, that calls you. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it depends on where you're at in the country. Different states have different requirements for the training, but typically it takes about six months of on-the-job training before you're on the council by yourself. It's something more along the lines of you would maybe attend college and, and take classes in some semblance of emergency services, whether it's police, fire, EMS, or maybe a combo, then you come, you get into the job and then you still have that intensive training because it's definitely not something you can get trained for before you start taking those calls. It's, it's hard to explain. So let's say as a woman, you're taking a call from an older man. Do you need a different approach talking to him than say if you were talking to that mom with the unresponsive baby? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is about sound, right? So my voice is, um, it, now I do sound a little older than uh, I did when I first started. But when I first started in the 911 field, I sounded like a young child. And my voice did not carry authority. You definitely had to learn different ways to handle different callers. It was uh, a very interesting experience. My very first trainer was a uh, a male. He never understood the differences and the nuances. You know, he would say, "Take control of the call." So you tried to take control of the call like he did, and it would backfire. If I tried to take authority 
and I was talking to a male caller, especially an older male caller at the time, they would talk to me like, young lady, don't you dare tell me what to do, right? That, how dare you, young lady, right? And you would have to go, okay, that's not going to work. I'm going to have to give a command with reason and make sure that these people understand I know what I'm talking about and you need to follow me because I know what I'm talking about, right? Not because I have authority. It's definitely different. And then when you talk to a small child, you're going to talk to to that small child as if you're talking to your own child. All right, this is what I need you to do. Mom needs you to help her and I need you to tell me, is mom breathing? Can you see if her chest is rising and falling, right? So the way you speak to that person is going to change based on not just who they are, but even their cognitive abilities. And you do have to determine that. Sometimes you're talking to somebody who may be cognitively impaired and you have to have to to handle that situation slightly different than you would maybe the child or the elderly gentleman. You have to handle things very differently. Wow. So it sounds like being a good listener involves so much more than just understanding spoken word and language. Uh, I've recently learned the term audible observer. And I'm curious, April, if you can take us through what it means and what is an audible observer listening for in one of these calls? Absolutely. So um, before I do that, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about, go back to the days pre-TV, right? We had radio and we had these wonderful radio shows and people would tune in on Sunday night at 7 p.m. to listen to their favorite radio show, right? And they would have to paint a picture in their head as to what was going on. You might hear people have different pitches in their voices and you'd hear different noises in the background. You might hear something that sounded like a gun firing or you had to take what you were hearing and mentally paint a picture as to what was happening so that you could turn around and tell somebody else what happened today on that episode, right? Well, that's no different than what a 911 professional does every single day. They have to listen only and take that information in, painting a picture in their own head, and then turn around and clearly and concisely regurgitate that information to the responders in in a manner that they can understand. So that's really what an audible observer is, right? You're sitting and you're listening, you're painting that picture in your head so that you can turn around and give the, the responders the right cues that they need for that response. Wow, fascinating. April, I want to take on a real world example you provided us with a recording of an incident where a young person is on the line dealing with a very difficult adult situation. So we should caution our listeners that this is disturbing, but it's the type of call that 911 professionals deal with often. Let's take a listen. 911, what's the address the emergency? Um, yeah, um, my mom is sitting on the ground crying because a man pushed my mom in the head. Oh my gosh. I'm scared and I need help. All right, we'll get help out to you. What's your address? I don't know the street. Okay, does your mommy know, or is there a piece of mail you can read to me? Mom, what's the street? No. What is the street, Mom? My mom says everything's okay. Okay, well, I can still hear her crying, and I'd like to get an officer out there to check on her just in case. All right. Okay. Do you know that the address at all? Um, do you know the street? Now, 
Were there any weapons involved? Did you see any guns or knives when it happened or, or any kept in the house? No, but he pushed my mom on the ground and she, I don't know, she, I think she hit her back on the, the ground and she's still crying. Okay. Do you think she needs an ambulance? No. All right. Officers are already on the way to help you guys. Okay. Right. Okay. You're doing so good. Wow. That's, uh, I, as a mom, that definitely is... It, it triggers a lot of emotions to for a young child to have to see something like that and, and make a call like that. What do you think is going through the 911 professional's mind in this situation? Maybe you can take me through the thought process a little. Absolutely. So first and foremost, the first thing that we're always going to have to try and determine is the location because location is everything. If we don't know where you're going to send the help, help can't be sent. So that's the first thing that you're going to find the 911 professional doing. Obviously, in this call, we've kind of beeped out and, and moved on along that process a little bit simply because we can't provide those locations. We don't want any information about the actual call. This is about the situation. The responders need to know, number one, are there any weapons involved? Because that tells them how they're going to have to respond to that call. How many different responders do we need to send? And then the next thing is we have to ascertain, does the mom have any injuries? You have to pretty much take yourself and your own emotions out of that call as much as you can while you're handling it while providing empathy so the child knows that you care and that you're getting the information so that they can you can help their mom. You're unpacking all of those things and there's a whole lot of things going on in your head while you're thinking about doing it. But like I say, when you've done it for so long, you don't even realize that you're doing those things. You have to, you're asking me to slow down and, and think about what is being done each step of the way. And that's a very different uh, mindset than the person who's doing it. You just do it because you know how to handle it. April, I feel like when you're taking a call like that, you're not just listening to the person on the phone. You're also listening to the background noise. In this case, you hear the mom, you hear the neighbor. Um, what is the role of the background noise that you're listening to in one of these calls? So if that call taker, if you listen to what she is saying, she hears mom crying and she says, you know what? I know mom says that everything's okay now, but we're going to go, if you don't mind, I'm still going to send an officer just to check on her because she knows that the mom has had something happen to her. She can hear her. She knows that she's not okay. And she knows that she needs to send help to ensure that everything is going to be taken care of there. Those background noises are extremely extremely important for us to hear. If mom, if she hadn't had that background noise and the child said, mom says everything's okay and you couldn't hear anything else going on, more than likely they would have probably still sent somebody to check on them, but it might've been at a lower priority. What we can learn from this call, you know, what what is she doing correctly to respond to this? Is there anything that you would have done differently? Anything that we should be thinking about? She did a really great job in that call. I think the only other thing I I 
I might have done a little bit more was just say, okay, honey, you're doing a great job. We've got, you know, we've got help coming to help your mom. Can you continue to help me help her until we get there? But, you know, those are things that it's super easy to armchair, right? It's easier to sit back and and look back and go, oh, I might have just done this a little differently than you do in, in the situation. I think the call taker did a really great job helping that little boy. Okay, as a mom, please tell me the story has a happy ending. Were the child and the mom okay? Yes, yeah. At at this specific call, the child and mom were okay. Responders got there, and um, thankfully, she wasn't hurt severely, and the other party was taken, you know, removed from the situations. Oh, good. Phew, I know that not every call ends well, but I'm glad that one did. My big takeaway from this is that a 911 operator is truly a hero. I'm curious how often in a month or in a career would a professional like her actually receive a call like that? Unfortunately, that one happens uh, uh, all too frequently. I live in a a more smaller community. It's not huge urban area. And I'm going to tell you that we we handled those types of calls every single day. In some instances, it gets worse than others uh, around holidays and, and more stressful times. We saw that during the pandemic where, you know, when people are, are stuck at home together, those types of calls did rise during um, the pandemic simply because too much family togetherness does happen. It's uh, unfortunate. And I'm glad that there are level-headed people like you to to walk people through that. April, any tips for the rest of us who are not on calls like this, but are still balancing stress in our daily lives? Any tips on how to stay cool under pressure and to kind of uh, separate our emotions? Well, first of all, you know, whenever the, the emotions get a little strong like that and you get heated, it's always best to separate, to walk away. And and a call taker will do that when you have a domestic situation like this. We ask them, step out of the room, go shut yourself in another room until law enforcement gets there so that they can help you, you know, make the situation better. If you can leave the house, go outside and wait for law enforcement. You need to take a couple of deep breaths. And callers, when they make those phone calls, they need to understand how important it is to provide their location. I think that that's one thing that in today's age, our lovely uh, smartphones, you know, they tell us how to get places. You can order a pizza on your phone and the the pizza driver knows exactly where to go to, to drop off that pizza. There's no app for that when it comes to 911. Quite frankly, it's not 100% accurate for your pizza app either. It's just best guess. And they can do a few other things. Um, Location, location, location is really important as well anytime you call 911. April, you mentioned texting, and that actually leads perfectly into my next question because I've been sitting here thinking that there are all kinds of communication technologies in use today. Many people are actually more comfortable texting than calling um, or using social media. I'm curious, do 911 centers still prefer phone calls or are there uh, ways to interact with people over other communication? So when it comes to text to 911, text to 911 is not available everywhere in the United States. We've got probably about a third of the 911 centers in the U.S. that actually have uh, text to 911 available. But that being said, voice is always best. And I'm going to be honest with you, when it comes to text, when you are in an emergency situation, your body goes into fight or flight mode, which what that does is it pools all of your blood 
to your core and your extremities. If you find yourself in an extreme situation like that, you're going to find that your extremities shake. Texting in that situation is very difficult. I have been in a couple of situations where I've had to call 911 myself and just dialing those three digits and pressing send was all I could do. Voice is always going to be better simply because it's easier to communicate. Text is not, you don't get the emotion. You don't understand all of the things that's going on. Remember I said we talked about audible observers. You can't hear background noise. You can't hear the person's voice inflection, how scared they are, or how, or maybe they're overcome. Those things help you determine what's going on in the situation when you don't have that. When you're using text, you're not going to see that. So it's a little bit more difficult to discern how important that call is. And April, to close out, where do you see the future of emergency call center operations? Uh, Do you think technology will change how we respond to emergencies? I mean, you mentioned that audio is important. Will it still be that important in the future? Your predictions. Oh, definitely. We are moving into what we call next generation 911. We've got a good portion of the country, probably about half of the country today, that is in some form of transition from a legacy system, which is all copper wires, hard line, wireline telephone technology, and it is moving into the IP world. As that transition occurs, we'll be able to receive more and more data which includes video and text and pictures and all of the data that can come from things like our our telematics providers, the the cars, right? We have OnStar and Ford's 911 uh, Assist and all of those different technologies. So yes, we will go into a different world, right? There are all kinds of different technologies that will assist us to do our job even better than we do today which is going to be a lot more training, analytics, and and so on. But I think we're up for the challenge. So I'm really excited to see what tomorrow brings. Absolutely. Me too. April Heinze, thank you for taking our call today and helping with this podcast. You're a true hero. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to air traffic controller Sarah Skulski for keeping our skies and runways safe and for being with us today. We should note that Sarah's comments reflected her own opinions and not those of the FAA. And what a fascinating conversation with April Heinze too. On the next Powered by Audio, we look into our crystal balls to predict the future of audio. How will our workplaces evolve? Will we be talking more to computers? How will they answer? We'll listen closely to experts on the trends in technology and the world economy on the next Powered by Audio. It's supported by EPOS. Find out more at eposaudio.com. Speaking of audio, if you like what you heard, please give us a review and be sure to click the listen or follow button to receive that next episode. I'm Randy Zuckerberg. Thank you for listening. Thank you.